Why do we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary? It's not because we have great faith. It's because we have a great God. It's not a social construct, but it is an eternal love of grace and peace and goodness and forgiveness and mercy and transformation. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning, our scripture reading comes from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, and we're reading together verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38, and you'll find it on page 1588 of the Church Bible. Now, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. A few weeks ago, my neighbors across the street spent a few days at the beach. They have two wee girls, Gray, who's five, and Kate, who's coming up two. And as soon as Gray got back, she was ultra excited. She ran across the road to tell me how much fun she'd had at the beach. And I asked her, what was the best thing? And she said, the water and the sand. I really liked them. And I said, well, was anything else fun at the beach? She said, no, not really. The water and the sand. And we didn't even have to go to church. Now, 
When you have a neighbor who's five years old, you fully realize that they treat you like one of their best friends and will tell you anything about everything and no unexpressed thought exists in her mind. If it's there, it comes out. She tells it as it is. And that's a wonderful uh, conversation to have with her from time. In Luke's gospel this morning, as we come to the passage before us, Luke tells it as it was. And this morning, as we make our way into the Apostles' Creed, the question uppermost in our minds is this. Why was the passage we have just read so crucially important that Luke has it in his opening chapter right there in the infancy narratives? And why did the framers of the Apostles' Creed include it? They don't mention the feeding of the 5,000. They don't mention the Sermon on the Mount. They don't mention the miracles of Jesus. But they include who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Why was that so important? Now, as we get further and further into our study this morning, I have a challenge for you. And the challenge is this. We are going to go to depths this morning that we don't normally do on a Sunday morning. And you will find it at times hard to follow exactly what I'm saying, so I need your cooperation this morning. Sometimes on a Sunday morning when I look out, some of you will be staring at the lights, some of you will be playing with the hair of the child in front, some of you will be twiddling your thumbs or reading through the bulletin. And if I catch you doing that this morning, I'm going to call you out. So a heads up, it's coming, choir, help me with this, please. And if you see anyone, point them and I'll call them out, please. Likewise, if you see the choir doing it, just point them out. Because what I'm about to say is a little complex. But I do need your attention this morning because what we're about to explore is foundational to our Christian faith. Question. And you may be here this morning saying, Richard, are you serious? We live in a day and age where Google and Twitter and YouTube provide the soundtrack of our lives, and you're taking us back to the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed? Is that all you can come up with in a day and age when we are dominated by iPhones and multiplex cinemas and satellite TV? Really? Is that all you can come up with? Well, there's a reason it's been around for the best part of 2,000 years. And some things are more important than a smartphone or Twitter or Google. And here's where I want to take you this morning. Because you may be sitting there saying, Richard, if this is like any other Sunday morning, you're going to take us into the text of Scripture... You're going to give us the sociological, the cultural, the geographical background to the passage. Then you're going to exegete the passage and encourage us to apply it to our lives. But before you do any of that, Richard, I have one question this morning, and it's this, and I need an answer. Is what we have just read true? That's my only question this morning. Is it true? You may say, Richard, I'm not asking, is it a metaphor? I'm not asking, is it a spiritual truth? I'm asking, is it true? Did it take place? Great question. 
And that's where we're going. Now notice what the passage says. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now hold that thought because we're coming back to it. It's going to take us a while this morning, but we'll get back to it, I promise. In order to be the church that God is calling us to be, we have to be a place that is life-giving, life-affirming, a place of prayer, a place of grace, and a place of genuine engagement with God. And if we are able to do that week in and week out, those things that we learn Sunday by Sunday will give us the tools to live in the year 2016. Here is one of the objections I hear about Christianity in the year 2016. The argument is usually this. So bear with me here, please, listen. Richard, Christians believe in absolute truth. And those who believe in absolute truth tend to think that everyone else should believe what they believe. And that seems odd to me. Because if you believe in absolute truth and then believe that everyone else should believe the way you believe, you are restricting their options for belief. And surely, in this day and age, surely... We can choose for ourselves what is true and what is not true. Maybe true for you, but it's not true for me. You will hear that any time you go on a television chat show or radio chat show. It's all over the web because that is the culture and society we live in. It may be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. And that mindset has become very popular over the last 25 or 30 years, mainly thanks to a French philosopher, Michel Foucault. And Foucault taught this, that truth is a construct of community. What he was saying was this, that a particular group of people in a particular society and culture and community, can determine what is true for them. They're absolutely entitled to determine what is true for them, but it is not a universal truth. It is true for them. It does not have to be true for me. You've got the point. True for them, not true for me. Now, Foucault was a disciple of Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche developed what he called a hermeneutic of suspicion. Now, some of you are glazing over again, but stay with me. We're getting there. And here is what Nietzsche said. He said, anyone who claims to have truth is only interested in influencing and controlling others with that truth. Therefore, it may be true for you, but I am free to say it is not true for me. That's the basics of what is going on in modern contemporary society and the culture we live in. It's true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, let me paint another picture. We'll get back to Nazareth eventually, I promise, so be patient with me. Is it true 
that at 11.47, on Sunday morning, April the 24th, I stood here in this sanctuary and delivered the sermon. Is that true? Yes, it's patently true. And if you live in Tokyo, or if you live in Johannesburg, or if you live in Moscow, or if you live close to the Mississippi, it is still true that at 11.47, I asked that question and was here delivering the sermon. It is an absolute truth. It is true everywhere. It will have no bearing on the folks who live in these other areas, but it's true. There are such things as an absolute truth. The United Nations Declaration on Human Rights talk of universal absolute truths. Every person, every culture, every age, there are absolute truths. But here's the problem. It's not whether absolute truths exist or not. I think there is vastly more evidence to support it than not. It's not so much do absolute truths exist, but what do those truths claim? That's what's at the nub of this. What do those truths claim? Are those claims true or not? Two weeks ago, staff headed up to the Asheville area to Billy Graham Training Center. We spent an overnight, there was about 28 or 30 of us, and we spent a couple of days looking at unrolling our strategic plan for the next five years. We had an excellent staff retreat this year. Now, on the way up, I picked up a couple of passengers, and I drove up I-26. So I'm driving up I-26, there's a very sharp bend, at least as I see it's a pretty sharp bend, when it joins I-25. Now, as I am approaching that bend in the road, there are road safety signs that say 45 miles an hour, there's a merge about to take place. In other words, they are saying, pay attention, don't lose focus, understand the circumstances in which you're driving. Now, I'm seeing some of you glaze over, stay with me please, hold on, we're getting there. I had a choice two weeks ago. We were a little late, number one. I was trying to make up a little time. I was around 60, 65 miles an hour driving. And I could have said to myself, now let's assess this. Let's look at this. Let's try and work this out. I've been driving for 35 years. I've never had an accident. I'm so grateful for that. I've not even had someone run into me. Therefore, I'm a fairly reasonable and safe driver. I'm running late. I'm a safe driver. I drive every day. Do I really need to pay attention to the signs that say 45 miles an hour? Maybe I should go up to 70 and I would gain an extra few minutes. But if I take the bend at 70 miles an hour, there is every possibility that the car will flip over and I will kill myself and my passengers and I will damage the cars and vehicles around me all at the same time. There wasn't even the remotest possibility that I was going to take that bend at 65 or 70 miles an hour. Why? Because the truth was this. 
that road engineers and traffic management people told me that you would be crazy to take it at 70 miles an hour. You cannot take that angle at 70 miles an hour. It is true. It is dangerous. Pay attention. I had no right to say, hmm, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. I was endangering the lives of the people around me with that attitude. Now, you may be sitting there and saying, Richard, I'm with you so far. I get that. And I understand that you can't say it's true for you and it's not true for me when it comes to science and road conditions and empirical data. I get that. But you certainly can do it with moral and spiritual questions. Absolutely can do it then. It may be true for you, but it's not true for me on moral or spiritual issues. Really? If you are the kind of individual who exists to create money, earn money, and would walk over your mother and your grandmother for another $50, please understand this. You will debilitate and hurt and wreck your relationships with your mother and your grandmother. You will. You cannot say morally it's true for you, but it's not true for me. This past Friday evening, I had a young couple in their early 20s stood here to be married. Nowhere in the vows did either of them say, well, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. You cannot live a happy, contented, fulfilled, loving, growing, developing marriage and morally live any way you like. You cannot do it. You cannot say, it's true for you, not true for me. You cannot say it. You cannot eat whatever you like, get to 600 pounds, eat another dozen Krispy Kreme donuts and have a healthy life. You cannot do it. Choices are to be made within restrictions. And all of us lives with restrictions. You're not free to do what you like or live any way you like because you will run into the consequences on a regular basis and it will hurt you. If you're a grandparent or a parent, go home after the morning service, find your pet goldfish belonging to your five-year-old, take it out of the water, sit it on the kitchen worktop, and determine it is now free. It's dying. It's not free. It's dying. When you do not live a moral, spiritual life, there are consequences your relationships begin to shrivel. Your soul begins to die. When Mary encountered Gabriel that morning, it wasn't a social construct. It wasn't something she had manufactured. It was something she was exposed to. And she was exposed to the love and grace and goodness of God. Suddenly, God in transcendent majesty and glory had become real and imminent and intimate with Mary. That's what happens when a person comes to faith. 
And often in the course of a year, people will drop by my office, they make an appointment, they'll say, Richard, there's something wrong with me. And I've told you this before, this isn't new. Some of you have had the experience. And the story will be something like this. Richard, I've been coming to church for the last six or seven months and there's something wrong with me. I'm in the shower in the morning and I'm singing hymns. I'm driving to work and I'm thinking about a passage we studied in Sunday school yesterday. What is wrong with me? I'm beginning to pray, to pray. Worship is now a priority for me. What has happened is this, that God in all of his wonder and grace has touched a life and drawn an individual into a saving relationship with him. And the intimacy and the love is overwhelming and their life has been changed. And when Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, you're not restricted for you long to love him in a deeper, richer way. You long to serve him because you've become alive. You've a new heart and a new soul, and you can't wait to serve him. That's what's going on in this passage. And so when someone in 2016 says, it's true for you, but it's not true for me, help them understand what they're saying is simply not true. It's simply not true. But let me tell you what it is. It's a convenient way of not having to face up to the claims of the gospel. Because you can brush it off. You don't have to think about it. You can minimize it and marginalize it. It may be true for you. It's not true for me. Folks, please hear me because I plead with you this morning. When you ultimately stand before the judgment seat of the living God, you will not get away with, it was true for them, but it wasn't true for me. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The gospel makes claims on our lives, and it's a claim of love and grace and transformation. And when Mary understood what was going on, what does she say? Notice how it begins. They describe in the sixth month to Mary, Nazareth, to a virgin married to a man, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And notice what Mary says, or what Luke records. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that might be. Why was she concerned? Why was she troubled? Because Mary understood this, that God himself was coming to her. He would overshadow her, and she would give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And folks, hear me please. When God does a work in the heart of an individual, it often can be unsettling and unnerving because suddenly you realize there is a supernatural dynamic to our lives. We were created to have a relationship with Him. And it's when we are in that relationship we find freedom. It's in that relationship that we find contentment and peace and love and grace at work. All of that goes on in that relationship. That's what's going on. And you may be here this morning and saying, Richard, I understand. I get it. 
but I wish I had the faith of Mary. I wish I had great faith. I wish I was like Peter or John or James or Andrew or some of the other apostles. I really do, but I don't have great faith. I only have a little faith. Remember the words in the gospel? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it's not great faith. It's the object of your faith that makes the difference. And when you trust and place your life in His hands, when you surrender and when you submit, then you know the fullness of what it means to live for Him. Why do we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, it's not because we have great faith. It's because we have a great God. It's not a social construct, but it is an eternal love of grace and peace and goodness and forgiveness and mercy and transformation. That's the gospel. And that's why Luke couldn't leave it out, because he understood that when God became a man, he became a man in order to redeem humanity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the challenge this morning to live in this year, in this culture, where the truth of the gospel is more important than what the culture and society around us tells us. Father, help us please this week to live in the light of all that you have taught us this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Richard Gibbons. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian. If you are wondering what First Presbyterian Church is like, one of the things you will discover is that each time you come, you will receive a very warm welcome. I have the pleasure of assisting with a number of ministries here at this church. I teach five new member classes a year. also help to lead mission trips to the Dominican Republic. And uh, we at this church do a number of things that impact our community. It's a wonderful place to serve. It's a wonderful place to belong. My main responsibilities include family ministries, which is marriage, men's ministry, and young adults. I also have the joy of serving the night worship service. My passion here at the church is to point others to the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. My particular job is in education, uh, whether it's adult education or youth or children. I have something to do with it uh, and would love to talk with you at any time about the things that you can learn from the Bible in our education courses here at First Presbyterian Church. Congregational care covers a lot of ground in a a church like ours. Essentially, we believe that uh, the mission of the church is to care for one another uh, as well as to outreach in the community. So our desire is to provide for the spiritual, emotional, and physical care of the members of our congregation and extend that also to the needs of our community. 
I'm Tina Jones. I'm the director of the children's ministry here at First Presbyterian. Scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We have a very vibrant children's ministry. When you come on a Sunday morning, your children have not just child care, we also offer ministry. One of the amazing things about First Presbyterian is our location. We're situated at the heart of Greenville, a growing and vibrant city. Everything from children's ministry and youth ministry to a prayer ministry and being very active in the community gives us an opportunity to spread and share the love of Christ. If you are looking for a Sunday morning experience that is engaging, vibrant and life transforming, please come and join us.